All right, we've now come to Luke 15, verse 11, 11 to 32. This is the third of the three parables in Luke 15. This one is the prodigal son, the well-known parable of the prodigal or lost son. We've read about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the lost son who will be found, just as the sheep was and as the coin was. Luke 15, 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring, the, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf Kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this son of mine was dead, and has come to life again. He was lost, and has been found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son, who was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants, and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat that I might be married with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and he was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you knowing that this is the word of Christ, the word of salvation. Mm -hmm. Help us to understand it and give us the heart of the prodigal son, the heart of repentance. May we rejoice with you in the things of God. May our souls be saved. Would you instruct us and teach us how to instruct others? 
In the name of Christ, amen. This uh, third parable of Jesus in this chapter is also addressed to the grumbling scribes and Pharisees. Notice in chapter 15, verse 1, verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him, and both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, Jesus in this parable, he's not addressing really any other group, but the kind of person who is like the scribes and the Pharisees who grumble at God and the messengers of God who receive repentant sinners. This is addressed in a way to address uh, or attack the problem of people who are self-righteous, they think they're better than others, and when God receives a sinful person into his kingdom, they look at themselves and say, well, why should God be gracious to that sinful person? He lived a very wicked life. He was a very vile person. He was notorious in the community. Everybody knows all kinds of evil he has done. And now he's repenting. Now he's, his life is changing. Why should God receive him? Shouldn't he receive me? I've been living a civil life, a peaceful life, a very caring life for my family and, and, and the neighborhood. I've been doing good. So why should God receive him and not treat me with joy? Why should God not be overjoyed with what I'm doing? This is what Jesus is addressing. He's addressing anyone who looks at himself as sufficiently good and righteous and looks down on others who are repenting of their wickedness, of their gross wickedness. That's what this parable addresses. So we have two sons, a father with two sons. And it says in verse 11, with these two sons, a certain man, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. This young one, notice it's the younger one. We don't know how old he was, but we know how it is in youth. In youth, it's very hard to control the, the mind, the heart, the mouth, the senses, the passions of the body. It's very hard to control them. And likely in this condition, this is why the younger of the son says this to his father and says, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. He wants to indulge. He wants to be lustful. He wants to be covetous. He wants what he wants. He has no shame. And he's going to plunge into his shamelessness with all the money that he can get. So he calls on his father to do it. And he knows that some of it is for himself and some of it is for his brother and whoever else. So he says, Divide it and give me what comes to me. So the father does so. And he divided his wealth between them. Verse 12. But shortly after that, it says, And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Not many days later, it did not take him long to seize what was the father's, to see how, how much he wanted to use it and spend it, but he did not have the shamelessness or, uh, to, uh, or um, fear of shame. He had not 
that in a distant country he had no qualms of doing it there, but he didn't want to do it near, near his father and everybody else. So he does it in a distant country. He goes to a distant country and he gathered everything, it says in verse 13. And in verse 14, he spent everything. He took everything, he went to this distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. He did whatever he wanted with his money. He did whatever. And this loose living, we know, is in, according to verse 30, he devoured his wealth with harlots. Even though he was there with his father, he was in a good place, he was about to receive the inheritance upon the death of the father, he couldn't wait, and instead he wanted to indulge his flesh in all of his physical desires with all the money that he had. And that's what he does in a distant country. There it's easier, since he's a stranger, nobody knows him, it's easier there to, pra to practice shameful deeds. And that's what he did. He goes to a distant country, nobody cares for him there, he's a stranger, a foreigner, and that's what he does. He spends it all, everything he had. Verse 14 says, he, Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. He did not anticipate the future. He did not anticipate that his circumstances could change. He didn't even think of what would it, it would be like when his pocket is empty or his bank account is empty, and then what is he going to do? He was not forward-thinking enough. He was into the here and now. He wanted to have his pleasures right now without any restraint, so he spent it all, and then a famine occurred. And what happens when famines occur? People are poor. People don't have enough to eat. People have to eat less. They have to eat certain foods, maybe undesirable kinds of foods. This is what they have to do. They might be out of work because there's nobody that's needed in the fields. There's nobody needed in the fields to harvest the fruits and the vegetables because there aren't any fruits and vegetables. There's a famine, right? So he is in need. So everything was before him. He took it all away. Then he spent it all away in a foreign land. And now he has nothing because of the famine. 15. In desperation. He is in utter desperation. He put himself in this position. 15. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. So, the foreigner who has no qualms with raising swine, pigs, and feeding them. You see, the Jews, they would not do so, at least the obedient Jews, they would not have anything to do with the swine, eating them or whatever. They would not do so because of the prohibitions in the law of Moses. They wouldn't do so, but he went to a foreign country where these foreigners have no qualms, they have no inhibitions, they feed the swine, they eat the swine, they use the swine for whatever, that's what they do. And he was so desperate that though he was a stranger to swine, now he's a friend. He has to be right there with those smelly, dirty, filthy creatures. He has to be right there. That's how low he got. When it says he attached himself, it means he said, okay, I'll work for you. What will you give me? Okay, well, I've got those pigs over there. They need to be tended to, and they need to be fed, so go take care of those pigs. That's the kind of desperate work he had to perform. And 
That's what he does. He has to do this to make a living. At least to eat enough to fill his belly. Somewhat. Because verse 16 says, And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. This farmer or landowner who has the swine isn't giving him enough, and nobody else in that territory, in that country, is giving him enough. He's hardly making anything, and he's always hungry, and he sees that he's got to feed the swine with the husk or the pods, the, the, the garbage kind of food that pigs eat, that's what he is seeing, and he's saying, I wish I could eat that. His stomach is so miserably hungry all the time. He wishes he could eat that, and no one is helping him. He thought he would have fun and friends with his fortune. He had the fortune temporarily, he had the fun temporarily, and maybe even the friends temporarily, the harlots, pretending to be friends, right? He got all that, all that temporarily, but all that dis disappeared. He is famished. He's famished in the famine. Nobody is helping him. Where did his money go? Where did his fun go? And where did his friends go? Nobody's around. He is completely abandoned. So he is in utter desperation now. And verse 17 says, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? Now he recollects what's going on, or what was going on, in his own father's household. And he says, The servants there, the hired men there, they have plenty. There's no problem over there. What's wrong with me? What happened to my head that I abandoned all of that to come and live over here, wasting all the money, and then now I barely have enough to eat? What's wrong with me? He came to his senses. So he knows that he needs to have a change in his life. So he says in 18, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He knows what he needs to do. He needs to go back to the source of blessing. He knew where the source of blessing was. He abandoned it. He forsook it completely, walked away from it, even spending money to sin against his father and, of course, sin against God. The father is representative of God himself. So he does this, and now he says, I'm going to go back. I know what was there originally. Now I'm going to go back, and I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He knows he is a culprit. He is guilty in the sight of God in heaven and in the sight of his father. He has forsaken the love of God and the love of his neighbor. He knows that. And he also realizes how worthless he is. He is not worthy enough to be called, he says, your son. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy to have your family name. So don't consider me that. Just make me one of your hired men. Because I know that the hired men have it better than the swine feeders in that distant country. 
So I want to be one of your hired men. He looks at himself in the right way. He diminishes himself in the presence of his father because he knows what kind of a wicked man he is. That he's resolved to do this. We know he's resolved to do it in a right way because he actually does. He doesn't just think it. He doesn't just say it. He actually does it, which is an evidence of true repentance. Verse 20, and he got up and came to his father. He got up and came to his father. Somehow, he was able to manage huffing and puffing, traversing the, the, the terrain, the long terrain, in order to get from a distant country back to his home. Somehow he got there, which shows his determination. He showed true repentance. And it says in 20, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father's out there. He sees, he looks up at the horizon and he sees his son coming back. But instead of waiting for the son to come all the way back to the door, to the front door, the father runs after him. He sees him. He feels compassion for him. He runs. He embraces him and kisses him. The father's obviously joyful. The father's obviously receiving him back. He knows that the son is repentant. He can tell that, even though the son has not expressed it yet, he can tell by his actions that there's a change in the son. Now the words of the son. Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He recognizes and he tells his father, I have sinned against heaven, meaning I have sinned against God, and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I don't want that name. Don't treat me like that. Treat me like anybody else. But I want to come back here. I want the blessings I had with you. The blessings that initially you promised to me, now I want to experience them. The promise was the inheritance. Now I want to experience them with you, in your presence. The father understands in verse 22, But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Firstly, notice the best robe, an elegant robe, a beautiful robe on his son. Not a cheap one, not a rag, but a good one, the best one. A ring on his hand. Remember, he squandered all of his wealth. Now a ring. Showing some kind of prestige, some kind of honor to his son. Sandals on his feet. He comes back barefoot. He comes back, he has nothing. He barely has anything. Now he comes back with nothing on his feet. Now he's able to walk. Walk in comfort with sandals. Not only that, the exterior, but the interior or the feeding of the, of the stomach and being joyful. 23 says, And bring the fattened calf. Not the lean one, but the fattened one. The tender one. The juicy one. Bring the fattened calf. Kill it and let us eat and be merry. Right? You can't have festivities unless there's food and drink. Correct? So, food and drink, festivities, why? Because he's overjoyed that his son is repentant. He woke up. He came to his senses. And he says so, verse 24. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. 
He was lost and has been found. And they began to be married. He announces to everyone why he's doing this. The son was dead, now he's alive. He was lost, now he's found. He had misery, now he is married. All of that changed. Isn't that good? Shouldn't everybody celebrate? Shouldn't everybody celebrate the fact that a vile sinner turned from his sin and now embraces truth, righteousness, godliness, holiness? Shouldn't we rejoice? It's the difference of night and day. Correct? But not everyone does. 25. Remember, the older son is a depiction of the scribes and the Pharisees and anybody else who's like the scribes and Pharisees who are self-righteous and think that God owes it to the self-righteous person for everything to come to him and nothing to come to a repentant sinner. God owes the self-righteous person, but he owes nothing or grants nothing or should grant nothing to the repentant sinner. So that's the older son, 25. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. Why would he summon the servants? He hears the music and dancing. He would want to be a part of it. Why would he not want to be a part of it? Just go and be a part of it. It's your house. Perhaps he was far in the field or something and somehow nobody got track of him and lost track of him or whatever. But now he's coming back to the house and he hears music and dancing. So just join it. It's your house, right? But he has to summon one of the servants and inquire what these things might be. Why not just go to the father or just go right into to the middle of the celebration and find out? Why do you have to ask, presumably from a distance, what's going on inside the house over there? No. That shows his wrong attitude. And 27, and he said to him, the servant said to the older brother, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The servants understand. They understand there's a valid reason to celebrate. He's received him back safe and sound. And where everybody's happy. But he became angry, verse 28. He became angry and was not willing to go in. You see, he suspected something. So he became angry and was not willing to go in. Already, his heart hardens with anger and unwillingness. He doesn't want to go in. He's only a short distance away now, right? The younger brother, the repentant sinner, traveled a distant, uh, a long distance from a distant country to come back home, even though he hardly had a penny. He came back home. He traveled that great distance to his father. But this older son, who's just a short distance from being inside the house, he won't go inside. He won't go. And he says, and it says in 28, and his father came out and began entreating him. The father, he wants to be gracious to everyone. He wants to be kind and good to everyone, every one of his sons. So he comes out, just like he went out to embrace the younger son. He came out here and began entreating him. He petitions him. He begs him, basically, 
begs him, come inside. But the son, even after the father entreats him, but he answered, the son answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat that I might be merry with my friends. Notice, he first looks at himself when he shouldn't be doing that. He looks at himself and he says, many years I have been serving you. He didn't have a time of, of lapse. He did not have a time of backsliding. He says, many years I have been serving you. This is what he asserts. So look at my history. Don't I deserve to have a patent cap? Don't I deserve it? That's his point. And he says, I have never neglected a command of yours. Now that's a stretch, don't you think? What, what child has always obeyed his parents? No, that's not true. But he says, I never neglected a command of yours. That's not true. However, he might have been a docile, obedient kind of a youngster. He might have been that. But even those kinds still disobey their parents sometimes, right? They sometimes disobey. But he has the gall to say, I've never, I have never neglected a command of yours. So he's exaggerating his own goodness. He's exaggerating his own righteousness. He thinks he's perfect. I, he's the perfect child. And then he compares it to what the imperfect son, the repentant sinner did or received. And yet you have never given me a young goat that I might be merry with my friends. Now he's jealous of the father's generosity. He's jealous of the father's generosity. And instead, he's pointing the finger at his younger brother. The younger brother in his unrepentant state. He doesn't look at the repentant state of his brother. He looks at the unrepentant state in verse 30. But when this son of yours came and has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. You see what self-righteous people do not understand? They do not understand repentance. People like this who are proud, self-righteous, they do not understand repentance. The Bible teaches repentance for forgiveness of sins. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. He did not understand that. He didn't get it. It did not register in his mind. He thought that it is all based on his good deeds. And because the son, the younger son, had wicked deeds, that that's all that should be a concern. Not whether the younger son repented of his wicked deeds. He doesn't uh, have any concern or care for repentance and the fruit of repentance and the reward of repentance and the celebration of repentance. He had no concern for that. The father answers, 31. And he said to him, the father said to his oldest son, older son, my child, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. You could enjoy whatever you want because whatever is mine is yours and you've always been here. But you have never desired to rejoice 
in what is worthy of rejoicing. That's the problem. You, older son, have never desired to rejoice in what you should desire to rejoice in. Because you did not rejoice in the right thing, there is no need to celebrate. There is no need to rejoice with you. But, in 32, but we had to be merry. We had to. It was a necessity. This is the way it is supposed to be. It's a requirement. We had to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. We have to do this. Because when dead people are alive, lost people are found, we should be happy about it. Let's reiterate a few points here. In verses 11 to 13, verses 11 to 13, Remember that the younger son, he had it all set before him, but he walks away from it, or he takes some of it, and he exploits it and squanders it. Okay? This is common among sinners. It is common for sinners to have everything right before them, both spiritually and physically. They have everything before them. They know the right way, they know the gospel, they know what the Bible teaches, they have plenty of wealth, they have a nice house, their parents, they have two parents, they have brothers and sisters, they have plenty of clothes, plenty of food, they have everything. This is common. Every, uh, many, many people have this, both physically and spiritually. They have this. Yet, what's astonishing is, people will have this right before their eyes, and they'll throw it away. They'll throw it away. Adam and Eve did that in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and God saw all that he had made, Genesis 1.31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good before any sin in the world. Behold, it was very good. Everything God made in the garden and in the world was very good. And in chapter 2, verse 9, it says that God planted the tree of life in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and every tree that was a delight was there in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2, verse 9. God provided that to sinless, perfect Adam and Eve. Yet sinless and perfect, originally righteous Adam and Eve squandered it all, rejected it all, by taking of that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They partook of that tree and they threw the whole garden out. They rejected all of the rest of the garden. A curse came on the world because of that, on them and the world. And God expelled them from the Garden of Eden. They had no more access to it after that first sin. They squandered it. If Adam and Eve could do that, what, su what surprises us that we do that? We do that all the time. God places before us everything we need, spiritually and physically, and yet we grab it, we seize it, we walk away from it, we abuse it. He has given us eyes, but we misuse our eyes. He has given us ears, but we misuse our ears. He's given us a mouth, we misuse our mouth. He's given us all kinds of other things, not just on our body, but outside of our body. He's given us so much, but we use that to sin against God. To sin against God. An example, another example of this is Hosea chapter 2. Hosea the prophet. Hosea 
Joel, Amos, Obadiah, a few pages before Matthew. Hosea chapter 2, to God is describing his people, and he describes it in terms of a marital relationship, okay? God describes his people in terms of husband and wife. Hosea 2, verse 8, God says, For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Baal is the name of a false god, of an idol, a statue. He, they used it, what God gave, grain, new wine, and oil, silver and gold, they used to worship idols instead of the true God. Verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. And I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. And I will punish her for the days of the bales, for she used to offer when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. God gave everything needed to the people of Israel, and yet the people of Israel forsook and abandoned the Lord like a, a wife who commits adultery against her husband. That's what they did. The husband, that is God, gave everything needed to his wife and yet the wife used all of those provisions to worship idols. That's, that should be no surprise. That's the way we are, humanly speaking. Another thing to keep in mind from this passage is when it says in chapter 15, verse 17, it says, But when he came to his senses, what does it mean that he came to his senses? We know what it means in terms of his insane living, and now he has a sane thought that this is miserable, I need to go back to my father. In Luke 15, 17, it says he came to his senses. Did he come to his senses based on his own brilliance? Did he come to his own senses based on his own unique and, and um, innate spiritual insight? No. He came to his senses because the Bible teaches that coming to his senses means that God rebirthed him, God regenerated him, God changed his heart so that he saw things the way they really are. He saw the reality of the situation. He was living like a madman, but when God changed his heart, coming to his senses means God changed his heart, when God changed his heart, he saw the reality of his miserable situation. And he knew he needed to repent of that. He became aware. So in the Bible, rebirth or the changed heart needs to come first before repentance comes about. Mm -hmm. Rebirth is first, repentance is after that. There are other factors, but I'm just hitting on these two major points. Rebirth 
precedes repentance. It's re rebirth first, repentance second. And to show that that is the case, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we will see this sequence. 2 Timothy 2.23. 2.23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. We see in verse 26 that they need to come to their senses. They need to escape from being captive by the devil, the snare of the devil. Those things must occur. They need to come to the knowledge of the truth. And how does all that happen? It happens if God grants repentance. If he grants repentance, that's in another way it's saying that God gifts it to them. And when he gifts it to them, they repent. So what has to be before repentance? Rebirth, or the gift of repentance, has to be endowed to the people so that they escape the devil, they are led to the truth, they come to their senses. This is what happens. That's the sequence, biblically. Furthermore, notice in verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 18, Luke 15, 18, 15, 18, where he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Sinned against heaven and in your sight. See his sequence. He knows that ultimately and more egregiously he has sinned against God. Yes, he sinned against his father, but he has sinned against God first. This is what Joseph acknowledged when he was tempted to sin against an adulterous woman. In Genesis 39.9, he said, said, How could I do this great evil and sin against God? Right, he would have sinned against himself. He would have sinned against the adulterous wife. He would have sinned against the husband of the adulterous wife. He knows all that. That's all in the context. But what does he say exclusively? What, what is he emphasizing? He says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? He only says God. Sin against God. That's what David said when he was confronted after he committed adultery. David in 2 Samuel 12 verse 13 Nathan the prophet confronted David after David committed adultery, murder, and deception. After he did all that, Nathan confronted him and David says, I have sinned against the Lord. He knew he sinned against a lot of other people too. There were even some of his soldiers who died in battle because of what he did. Not just Uriah the Hittite, the husband of the adulterous woman, but he also sinned against all those soldiers because those soldiers died in battle because he wanted to make sure one of his soldiers, Uriah, died in battle. But some soldiers died, not just one. And then he says, I, I have sinned against the Lord. He knew he sinned against many people, but ultimately he sinned against God. And in Psalm 51, verse 4, he says it in those words. He says, against you only, against you and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? 
He sinned against God. He knew that. That was the ultimate offense against God himself. And that's what this son recognized. The younger son, he recognized he sinned against heaven and in your sight. Certainly he sinned against his own father. Of course, when we sin, we, we either sin against ourselves or we sin against ourselves and other people. If we steal, we sin against another person. When we lie, we sin against another person. When we commit adultery, we sin against another person. When we murder, we sin against another person. When we dishonor our parents, we sin against another person. So yes, when those kinds of sins occur, we sin against other people. But not only is reconciliation needed between us and the other people, but also between us and God. And the manifestation that we are truly repenting toward God is that we reconcile with each other. Don't miss that. He recognized, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. So how does he prove that he knows he has sinned against God? He proves it by going back to his father and telling the father this confession because he wants to be right with his father. 1 John chapter 4 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. That's 1 John 4, 19 to 21. Teaching that the only way we come to love God is if God first loves us. That again is repentance, or, or rebirth re preceding repentance. We love God because He loves us first. But if we claim to love God, we better show it by loving one another. If we do not love one another, reconcile with each other, forgive one another, confess our sins to one another, be kind and gentle to one another, practice self-control with one another, if we don't do that with one another, then we're sinning against God and we're showing we're not loving God. This younger brother knew what to do. The younger son knew what to do. He needed to get right with his father. And that's what he did. Furthermore, it says in chapter 15, verse 20, 15, verse 20, that he, the son got up came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This should not be mistaken to mean that the son needs to take the first action before the father does anything. No. This is explaining a further sequence of events. A further sequence of events. God worked in the younger son's heart. God is the one who gave him enough diligence and drive to leave that distant country, to make that arduous journey back to his home country, to his own home. God is the one that worked in him. So, when the father sees this and embraces him, runs after him, embraces and kisses him, what this means is that when God sees that we are repentant, he makes sure to embrace us and show us by his comfort, by his presence, by his love, by his spirit, 
that we are actually joined to him. That's what it means. He gives us assurance. He gives us peace. He gives us this comfort that we belong to him. That is this warm embrace of the Father. That's what God does when he sees this repentance bearing fruit in our life. He gives us this assurance. That's what Isaiah 65.24 says. Before they call, I will answer, he says. Before they call, I will answer. God is ready and willing even before we open our mouth. Isn't that what happened with his younger son? God was ready and willing to reconcile even before the son opened his mouth because God already knew by the actions, or the father already knew by the actions of the younger son what was in his heart. And then the younger son opens his mouth and, and confesses and expresses his sin. And also, notice in verse, verses 15, uh, or chapter 15, verse 24, and as well, 24 and 32, it says, This son of mine was dead. When the Bible says that sinners are dead and need to be made alive, lost and need to be found, it means that they are utterly in a hopeless, powerless condition to save themselves. So it takes God to lift them up. They are utterly hopeless in their sin. Um, Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. But then, verses 4 and 5 say, but God, with his great love with which he loved us, he showed his mercy toward us, and he made us alive together with Christ. We were dead, but God extends great love and mercy and grace to us and makes us alive together with Christ. Spiritually dead people cannot make themselves spiritually alive. It takes a miracle of God to do so. And then in verse 28, 15, 28, remember how this older son is angry and unwilling to enter the house and he looks at himself as better than his younger brother. What did Jesus say in another parable, another parable that's mentioned in Matthew 21 to 16? There were some laborers in the vineyard. Some of these laborers were hired in the morning, some in the middle of the day, some later in the day. And then others, they were hired right around 5 p.m., close to the time of sunset, when it would get dark and they would have to come inside from the field, right? And the landowner paid all of these temporary farmers, temporary harvesters, he paid them all the same amount. So, those who worked all day long came and they complained about it. They came and complained to the landowner and said, verse 12, Matthew 20, verse 12, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious, literally evil, is your eye envious or evil 
because I am generous and literally good. Thus the last shall be first and the first last. God gives everyone who repents salvation. Whether that person repents at age 5, 10, 20, 50, or 80, 80 on his deathbed, God gives them all salvation. And because God generously gives salvation to anyone like that, we should not think of God as being unjust or unloving, unfair. He holds out those who repent receive salvation. So that's what he has said. That's what he's agreed to do to those who repent. So we should not look at God as unjust, unfair, like the older son did of the father. And one more point, and that is verse 32. Verse 32 is a point we've made already last time when we studied the earlier parables. What is the emphasis in this passage? That we ought to rejoice. We had to make be merry and rejoice, verse 32. We had to be merry and rejoice. This is a, an easy thing to figure out. When good happens, we should rejoice. We should throw a party. We should do that when good happens. We shouldn't be sad. We shouldn't grumble and gripe, but we should be happy. This is what happened in chapter 15, verse 7. Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And verse 10. In the same way I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God rejoices over repentant sinners and angels love to see God rejoicing, and they love to see repentant sinners. Jesus teaches repentance. Let's teach the same. And in fact, let's all of us do the same. Let's all be repentant sinners. Not only upon our conversion, but every day. When we hear that we are not living according to the will of God, let's repent and live according to the will of God. 1 John 2.17 says, the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Let's do that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.